New Creation Realities. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 4. Father, we, again, we do, we approach your word with great reverence, and at the same time, Father, I'm never going to apologize for the joy that you put in our spirit. But I thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you for the word of God. Please, Lord, like, like the writer of Scripture said, the word of God, this is not the word of a man. We have to receive these things as the word, as it is in truth, the word of God. The word of God, not the word of a man. So, Father, regardless of what our minds battle with, please help us to have the courage to keep exposing our spirit to this spirit truth. Jesus, you said the words that I speak, they're spirit and they're life. So, Father, please help us to comprehend just that, that your word goes first into our spirit before it's comprehended fully with our mind. That's why we have such need of patience. But help us now, Father, as we move forward in this teaching on the revelation of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is hour number four on the revelation of righteousness. And we're still in lesson, I don't know what lesson we're in, but I'm going to just keep going in it. But I, want us to, I don't want to miss this last verse on page 13 when we're talking about the fact that we're no longer in bondage to Satan. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, I want to read this. The summary of that lesson had been that man had lost his fellowship with God at the fall, that man had died spiritually in Adam, but the new birth restores all that was lost. That's something, again, like I said before, you have to really ask yourself, and I, I have my own beliefs, but I want you to really think about that. Ask yourself the question over and over again, how perfect is our redemption? In other words, what, how, what state of fellowship with God, for example, have we been redeemed, redeemed back to? Have we been redeemed to a state of fellowship with God that was less than what Adam had, equal to, more than, whatever, but think about it. Think about that, because if that form of fellowship, if, if we've been restored back to that perfect fellowship, which is what the scripture says, then somehow we have to begin to live as though that is so. And just, I, you know, the, even this last night, when I was praying about something last night, I was, you know, I'd, I'd been, I'd studied some of these scriptures afresh and stuff. And uh, Julie and I were talking about something that we're trying to work out in the ministry. And because I'm teaching this, of course, I said, you know, one of the things I've learned about when you know that you're right with God. See, I'm right with God. <laughs> Sorry, that upset you not. I'm right with God. I actually am. I did not say that my head is perfect. I did not say that my body is perfect. I didn't, didn't say that I still don't do idiotic things, but see the glory of this being right with God is that even when I mess up, remember I've got an advocate with the Father, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just come to him and boom, all unrighteousness is gone again out of my spirit. And I'm just clean and just like a little, little, no. <laughs> but I was sitting there thinking about, you know, when you know you're right with God, like I said, it just takes the fear out of you. And it's, it, you, you find yourself saying, I'm going to do this. I think I'll just do this. I think I'll do this because after all, I'm right with God. So if God's for me, who can be against me? 
And so I'm gonna step out and try this. Now, what I'm trying to communicate is that when you have a revelation of righteousness, it takes the timidity out of your spirit and it allows you to risk more than you would ever risk normally. In other words, you'll attempt things and you'll learn by having the freedom to attempt things that even if it wasn't the right thing for you to be involved in, because God's so with you and so for you that he never leaves you, that if you do mess up, he'll go, well, it's okay, let's try again. <laughs> and I mean, there's something about knowing that it gives you such joy and such courage that I get to play until I win. Let's try this. Well, what if you're, what if you're not absolutely right? Because see, the world goes, you gotta be sure, you gotta be sure, you gotta be sure. God says, you're my children. He said, let's go, let's go do this for a while. Let's go try this. And you have to have that kind of a freedom where you can just step out and do something because that's how God begins to train you in really learning how to follow after his spirit because he knows your flesh and blood still. He knows that you're still more led by your head and led by your flesh than you are by his spirit. So it's only as you get out there and try that you begin this journey as you, and you begin to learn what it means to be led by the spirit because you learn to acknowledge him in all your ways and you get out here a little ways and you go, hmm, that's, this isn't really going like I thought it would. And God says, yep, I know, but now let's, why don't we try this? Let's move over here. And it upsets people so many times because see, so many people want to have an absolute perfect clarity about what God has asked them to do. But again, this, you know, when I, like I said, on all the years I've ever had involvement in Bible schools, when I was the principal of the Bible school and over there and what, by students, the number one question is, how do I know the voice of God? And uh, I, I only have one, I have one teaching that I do about it because it's just this simple. The Word of God says all of God's paths are peace. Think about that statement. All of God's paths are peace. So if it's a path of God, it's going to be identified by something in you called peace. Jesus said the peace that I give is not like the peace that the world gives. So what I'm trying to, again, spit out is this. The way you get led, you learn how to be led by God is you have to do what it takes to learn what the peace of God is so that you can rightly understand what the peace of God isn't. Because we're called to be led by our spirit and spiritual peace comes from here, not from here. I was talking to somebody just before the classes about this and I said, the one thing you have to learn early on is to know the difference between your mind or your soul and your spirit. And very basically, it's just this. Remember that there's no place. It's amazing when you really think about it. There's no verse in the Bible anywhere that says that you're to believe with your head. Every verse says you believe with your heart. And it doesn't mean the physical blood pump. It's speaking about the spirit of man. But you have to learn that you can have absolute peace in your mind, everything looks perfect, but you learn what it means to have that. But something down here is saying, ding, 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 this is wrong, something's upset, I don't like it, something's bad. You've got to check in your spirit, is what we say. There's something wrong down here. These old, old prophets of God used to say, this one used to use this phrase all the time. He said, he said the peace of God is that, what I call that sweet, velvety feeling, he said, I get on the inside. But you have to learn that sometimes everything can be confusion here, but you can have such peace here. Or the opposite, sometimes you can have so much confusion here, you think this is the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. But down here you have this incredible peace. 
And that is basically the key to life, is learning how to walk with peace, where there's peace. But this is the thing. The Bible says, then acknowledge God in all your ways. Think about this. First, you have to acknowledge. You have to let God come into the decision-making process. Acknowledge God in all your ways, and then he will begin direction of your paths. And what this works out into is this. God, because he's made us free moral agents, doesn't force himself upon anybody. And it's the exception to the rule to think that God will speak audibly to you every time you have a question of him. No, the way God's intention is, at least if we study the scriptures, God wants you to be in motion because it's always easier to give direction to a moving object. He wants you to be in motion. And we're to acknowledge God. And what it comes down to this, Father, I'm going to go here. I think I, I'm going to go here. I'm going, I'm going to make the decision because the Bible says, remember, he will bless what you put your hand to. But what you have to do is always make sure he's in the process and by acknowledging him. In other words, saying, Father, I acknowledge you as the Lord of this decision. I'm going to make this decision, but I want you to be in it with me. So I acknowledge you, Jesus. I make you the Lord of this decision. And then you move in that direction. But what happens is because you've made him the Lord of it, as you move in that direction, if it wasn't God's best for you, you'll begin to feel this mm, <laughs> something in here will come up and say, wait a second. You feel the lack of peace. There's not a peace about this. I don't have a peace about this. So what you do then, and this is the key that, again, this is the real struggle for most Christians. What I always tell them is this. When you get to that place, what you have to learn to do then is to back up, listen, back up to your last place of peace, readjust, and move again. But this is the big problem. Most Christians have never spent enough time or they've not, they haven't paid the price in prayer to actually discover what the peace of God is so that they can rightly understand what the peace of God isn't. Because if all of his paths are peace, how are you really going to know his path if you don't know what peace is and what peace isn't? But we're talking about another peace, not the kind of peace that the world talks about. We're not talking about sitting out in the middle of a lake fishing. Oh, this is so peaceful as you cast, you know. <laughs> we're not talking about, about that. Colossians 2, let's look at this. We are the righteousness of God. You have to know you're right with God now. Now, like I said, there's so many verses in Colossians chapter 2 that I would go nuts. I'd read them all. But I'm going to start faithfully in verse 12. Paul said, well, I'll read in verse, no, starting at 11. If Colossians 2, 11. In him also you were circumcised. Now, see, you've got to remember, you need to read all the past tenses of Scripture to see what he has already done. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, not, he said, but in a spiritual circumcision that was performed by Christ when he, now listen, when he stripped off the body of the flesh. Now think about that statement. Did he strip off your physical body when you got saved? Are you just a walking little nebula of spiritual something, glue, walking in this room? What was he talking about? What did he cut off? What did he cut out of you? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. He said, 
In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision, not made with hands, but in a spiritual circumcision, performed by Christ, by stripping off the body of the flesh, the whole corrupt carnal nature with its passions and lusts. Thus, you were circumcised when you were buried with him in your baptism, in which you were also raised with him to a new life through your faith, your faith in the working of God as displayed when he raised him up from the dead. Verse 13, and you who were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, your sensuality, your sinful carnal nature, God brought to life together with Christ, having freely forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out, blotted out, and wiped away the handwriting of the note and the bond with its legal decrees and demands, which was enforced and stood against us that was hostile to us. This note with its regulations, its decrees, its demands, he set aside and he cleared them completely out of our way by nailing it to his cross. But verse 15 is the one I really want you to see. I, I want you to ask yourself a question as to whether or not you believe this verse. It says, God disarmed the principalities and the powers that were ranged against us and made a bold display and a public example of them in triumphing over them in him and in it, the cross. Hallelujah. What's disarm mean? Took away the weapons. It said he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And another place it says that he spoiled principalities and powers. If you haven't been taught this before, the word spoil, if you look it up in any good commentary or an old Judeo-ethic thing, the histories, the antiquities of the Jews, Josephus talks about it, what have you. When you spoil an enemy is when you came into an area and you defeated them soundly. But then what you did is you would take the king of the enemy's army that you've defeated. And this is what the Bible says Jesus Christ did to Satan. You take the king, you line up all his warriors down a road or highway, and you strip the king naked, put a chain around his neck, and you parade him in front of all of his soldiers. That's spoiling. Jesus Christ spoiled Satan. Disarmed principalities and powers. That's what it says. Now, if that's the truth, now listen, if that's the truth, then why do we have so much difficulty with what people ascribe difficulty to the devil with? This is why we come back to this simple dogmatic truth that you've got to get through to your brain. Satan works through deception. He's a renegade spirit. He's the father of lies. He still has bluster and loud voices, but his power has been disarmed unless you empower him through your belief system. But you, you know, what you believe, you empower, right or wrong. You, do you know that like witchcraft, there are entire ministries based upon dealing with witchcraft. And see, and I gotta be careful, but we're going to read a little bit in Galatians. Do you know that witchcraft is listed as one of the works of the flesh? The flesh, 
the flesh. The word witchcraft speaks to the dominion of the mind, not the dominion of the spirit. Witchcraft is a mental power, not a spiritual power. No matter how many people have just tried to deceive you by, I don't care what what's-her-name does with Harry Potter, it's not a spiritual power. It's a mental prowess. It's a mental thing. It's a, it's, that's why, you know, even Christians get into what we call spiritual witchcraft when they try to manipulate the minds of people. But the thing is, this is, you see, deception, it's like I always quote my friend Rick Joyner. Rick says the thing about deception is it's deceptive. <laughs> Satan presents himself as an angel of light, as ministers of righteousness, all these verses. But to say that he's not been disarmed is to say that Jesus Christ's work was not enough. So this is what I mean. You see, if all you do is talk about the devil, you empower the devil. But one of my fear, and I, right now, and it really upsets me because I can't remember where it is. But it says, it speaks about, it's, I think it's the same verse of where it said he spoiled principalities and powers. The word there in the Greek, and I, forgive me, I don't remember the verse right now, is paralysis, where we get the word paralyzed. And it says that Jesus Christ dealt him a paralyzing blow, all right? That he dealt Satan a paralyzing blow when he went down there and made his, you know, his death with the wicked in his grave. And this is the way I had it illustrated to me when I was first born again. I've never forgotten it, and to me it's still the best illustration. Let's say I walk in here today and, uh, you know, and, oh, Sophie walks up to me and says, you know, uh, this brother here, uh, I heard him speaking in the, and he said, uh, when you come in here today, he's going to beat you upside your head. He's going to kick you in the face, knock you to the ground. He's going to break every bone in your body. I mean, he's going to tear you up one side and down the other. I heard him say it. He said he's going to do it to you. Well, now, when I look at the guy, he's a pretty big dude. And I might look at him and go, you know, he's probably, he could probably do it. You know, I'm, in the old days, I might have took him, but not now. <laughs> But, you know, the guy can, you know, and I can go and I can become really like this. You know what I mean? Think about it, because this guy, somebody's told me they've heard categorically the guy is going to nail me to the wall. You know what I mean? And I can start to shake. But then Julie comes to me and says, Rod, you know, that guy sitting back there that's doing all the talking. Yeah, he's paralyzed. He can't move a muscle. All I can do is talk. Well, that changes the picture. I can. But if I don't know, if I don't know what's happened to him from what he tells and what he yells at me, I will respond and live and react as if it was true because I don't know the truth. This is what I'm saying. See, don't get mad at me. I did not write the Bible. This book says Jesus Christ disarmed the principalities and the powers that were arrayed against us. So what is his major weaponry? His weaponry is deception. But how does deception work? What's the root of all deception? And this is what I mean. He challenges what you know about what God has said. The first, remember, the first recorded words of Lucifer in scriptures in Genesis 3, hath God said. That's the law called the law first mentioned. When you see in anything in the Bible, when something is first stated, first released, it's a spiritual law that you see the strain of run throughout all scripture. The first words he ever spoke were, hath God said. He challenges your knowledge or your mis 
application, which is what happened with Eve, of what God has said. But don't ever doubt the scriptures because this is what you have to, why you have to live by faith. This is why you are to come boldly to the throne of grace. This is why you're supposed to submit yourself to the truth of God so that you can then resist the devil because he will flee. I love the verse that says in James, I think it's in James, isn't it? It says that it, where James is rebuking these people because he said they, they said they believe in God as if that made them something. He said, you say you believe in God? He said, you do well. He said, devils believe. And he said, they believe with such horror as to make a man's hair stand straight up on his head. And you, I love that. Demons believe in God to such a degree that the very thought or consideration of God makes every hair on whatever their ugly head looks like stand straight up in abject fear. So it's always funny when people tell me they believe in God. And I said, well, at least you're in the same league as devils. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> But think about it. He said, you do well. He said, well, he said, devils believe. And they stand in such horror because of what they've seen, what devils know. See, devils know. And this is the thing. This is like with Paul when we teach on the, real, the truth about spiritual warfare. And I'll mention this at another time, too, when we get into prayer and courses down the road. But I, it, these things are what struck me all those years ago early in my Christianity. Like I said, when you think about, like, remember when Paul cast the devil out of somebody and then these seven sons of Siva, remember, hear about it, and they go down the road to somebody else who has a devil, and they said, remember, we adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out of the man, remember? They try to take authority over the devils in this person. And remember what the devils say in this? It says, Jesus we know, and Paul we know. But who are you? And they jumped on, this, on these seven guys, beat them up naked, and they all ran down the street naked. Paul, we know. And what I've learned is that the more you walk in this stuff, I, the realm of the, you, let me just say it, you begin to gain authority, credibility, recognition in the realm of the Spirit. That realm begins to, that realm recognized Paul. They knew that Paul knew. Do you hear me? These seven sons of Siva were just attempting something. But Paul knew what he knew. He knew what he believed. He was persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And all I'm saying is, you see, the more we walk in Christ, the more authority we gain in the realm of the Spirit. Don't you want, wouldn't you like to be known in the realm of the Spirit? To where devils recognize the authority you carry? But see, they're deceivers. I said they're deceivers. Anyhow, turn the next page. I can't spend any more time on that. Lesson three, hallelujah. We are not dual natured. Now, this is something that in a lot of Bible colleges they will teach. And maybe you might argue with me that it's a matter of semantics or just word usage. But it's a very important issue. You'll always hear even, again, so many well-intentioned good speakers talking about, well, that's just my old nature. That's my old nature. Let me tell you, if you still got that old nature, you're not saved. <laughs> Do you hear me? Because there's no, the Bible does not teach dual natures. But what confuses people is that your flesh, Paul is going to say in Romans, still has within it a law of sin and death. Your spirit's born anew, but in your flesh, there's another law, he said, that wars against the law of your new man. And so often that law that's in your flesh, 
you call your old nature, but it's not your old nature because your old nature was nailed to a cross. Your flesh, in other words, you can't, it's like you have to call a spade a spade. You see, you don't get victory over something until you actually recognize what it is. Then when you recognize what it is, you say, oh, wait a second, that's not my old nature. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. That's just my stupid hunk of meat that I need to bring into subjection. I need to handle the thing like Paul said, I handle my body roughly. Think about that. He said, I handle my body roughly. I treat it like a, I handle it like a boxer. I buffet my body. Or like some of us in America, we buffet our body. It's spelled the same way. We're not, okay, the new nature. <laughs> Sorry. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if any person is engrafted in Christ, the Messiah, he is a new creature altogether, a new creation. The old previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. Behold, the fresh and new has come. Okay, and you can't get any clearer than that. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. All the old nature is gone. We now have the nature of God in us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It says, Jesus was made to be sin. Now you have to settle again that question. Do you believe that was the case? Uh, later we'll go to Isaiah where again it says that he took upon himself, he be, okay listen, Jesus bore our sins and was made to be sin. Two different things. Jesus bore the penalty for our sins, but that couldn't have been enough. He had to do something about the very nature that caused the sinning. Otherwise, all there would have been was another atonement. So paying the penalty for your sins is one part of what he did, but he went way beyond that. Hallelujah. In that he took, the Bible says he became Sin. And this is something, this is the part, like I said, that really upset a lot of religious people because they think it's blasphemy. In Isaiah, it says Jesus Christ, listen to this, made his grave with the wicked. Listen, with the wicked in his deaths. In the scriptures in Matthew, Jesus spoke about how he's going to go to the lowest parts of the earth. Do you remember hell, there's three, there was three compartments in hell. There was paradise that was also called Abraham's bosom. Every saint of God in the Old Testament, are you listening to me? Every saint of God who died from Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, none of them went to heaven, remember. They went to a compartment of Sheol or Hades that was called Abraham's bosom or paradise. That's what the Bible teaches. There's a third compartment. We don't want to worry about it because people get confused called Tartarus where the fallen angels went. But then there was again hell itself where the wicked went. And between the two, remember, every time when Jesus taught parables, when he said a certain man, it spoke of a real instance, not of just some story. When he spoke about Abraham and Lazarus and what have you, Abraham, and he said there's a great, there was a great gulf fixed between them. See, all the saints were on one side of this gulf. All the wicked were on the other side. You've got to understand that's what this book teaches. Jesus Christ made his grave with the wicked in his deaths, plural. 
It says in Isaiah 58, 59, Isaiah 58. He made his grave with the wicked in his deaths. Very important that it's plural. Because he not only died physically, but here's the statement that everybody gets mad about, but I'm going to say it anyhow. He died spiritually. There's a man who's now dead named Hobart Friedman, whose ministry took over this nation for a long time, who is the one that was the greatest proponent about saying that what I just said was heresy. And unfortunately, he died very badly uh, because he caused a lot of problem in the body of Christ because he thought it was a, in fact, many people think it's a despicable thing to think that the Son of Man, the Son of God, took upon himself the very nature of Satan or sinning and became like as we were in all ways. Because they think it took from the sovereignty of God and it's very difficult for them. It's very difficult for the religious mind to understand. But all we can do is go to scripture and it says he made his grave with the wicked. And it's very emphatic, the usage of these words throughout when you study them along, along with all of them. But you have to understand, you see, he had to take the penalty upon him to totally bring perfect redemption to us today. He had to go through. It was God's plan, whatever we would have had to gone through. But it says he led, he went, it says, remember that again, he spoiled principalities and powers. Well, let me tell you something. Principalities and powers weren't in paradise. Do you hear me? They weren't on that side of the Gulf. He didn't war with Satan. He didn't spoil Satan in paradise. Satan wasn't in paradise. But even in the order of how it said he spoiled principalities and then he led, then, then, then he led captivity captive. And this is where, like I said, this incredible, wonderful teaching when you really think of it. And Oral Roberts and these others used to teach on it all these years ago. It's incredible when you really see Satan, God, you know, remember how the scripture says, had the prince of this world known, he never would have crucified the Lord of glory. See, he didn't understand the master plan of God. And it says that all in Psalms, when it's, when it's quoting Jesus on the cross, you know, was quoting Psalm 22. And he said, when he talks about, you know, my, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, and you see all this stuff there and the bulls of Bashan surrounded me. And this speaks of all these demonic powers. He went into the lower compartment of the earth and Satan thought he had him and they were rejoicing and they were going, we've got him, we got him, we got him. That's what all the Psalms, all the Davidic prophecies say. We've got him, we've got him, we've got him. But suddenly what he didn't understand was this had been a part of God's plan and God from heaven quickened him. Think about this. The very first, he's the first begotten from the dead. The very first born again man was born again in hell itself. And we're afraid to evangelize in London. Oh, you didn't hear me. The very first born again man was Jesus Christ. And he was born again in the pit of hell. God's spirit burst into hell, quickened his spirit. He was made alive. It says he was made alive. It says the scripture says he hurled back principalities and powers. If you can just picture like these things all around him, you know, like gloating. We've got him, we've got him, and all this kind of stuff. It says he hurled back. You see, it blew his mind. The princes of the world didn't know. They always make stupid mistakes. They go too far. That's the key. They always go too far. We're supposed to face forward, not look backwards. We follow God. Oh, no, I don't want to go there now. I'll get really bad in trouble. I don't mean to keep saying that all the time like I'm clever or something. I apologize. But he hurls back principalities and powers. He goes across this gulf and he's, hello, Abraham. Hello, Moses. Hello, David. Hello, Isaac. Hello, Jacob. And he greets them all and he says, come on, boys, we're going. And he raises from the dead and takes and leads all the captivity out of paradise 
to heaven. But on the way, he stops and several of the people that had died, remember the Bible says, many when he was raised from the dead who had been dead and in the tombs arose and walked the streets of Jerusalem for many days, recounting the story of what had just happened. And then he said, because his work wasn't totally finished, when the disciples saw him, he said, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended unto my father because he had to take his blood, Hebrews says, and go up into the true tabernacle that was not made with hands because the very heavenly utensils themselves had been soiled by man's sin. And he cleansed all the heavenly utensils. And we were redeemed. <laughs> but I mean, this is what blows Satan's mind. But see, so many people, they can't accept this, that he died physically but he underwent another death. You see, nowhere in scripture does the word death mean cessation of existence. It doesn't mean that you cease to exist. Spiritual death always speaks to separation from the presence of God, always. To be spiritually dead means to be separated from the presence of God. That's all it means, but that's what it means. That's what it means. So here we come back to this and we've got to see, like I said, in this, this passage, what God has done. We don't have an old nature. He took that new nature. He was made to be sin. You've got to let that be true. He didn't just carry the penalty for our sinning. He took upon himself the nature that caused the sinning. God made him who, know, who knew no sin to be sin. And I, you know, don't, you don't have to believe me, like I said, but do your, be honest at least. Go get some lexicons, read it for yourself and consider it, but always interpret scripture in context with other scripture. Go look at the rest of it and look at this new covenant, but this is why you've got to stay in the new covenant and you've got to spend, like I said, 85% of your time in the New Testament. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 3, 22 and 23, 24. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I was back when I was in Bible school years and years ago, there was, you know, there's always legalistic people. And, it, and it, well, put, how many of you have ever heard people just come up and go, this is, the way they, this is the way they witness to you. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I had a guy once put a note. And he, this guy used to walk around putting notes on people's windows on their cars. He, he, this was witnessing. This was his idea of witnessing. For all have sinned and come short in the glory of God. And then his other favorite scripture was this. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. You know, and this is really going to cause people to really want Jesus. You know what I mean? You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. But it's so funny how people always pull that verse out of scripture, out of text and go, all have sinned. All of you have sinned. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. Sinners, ugly, rotten, foul, unclean, vile sinners, all have sinned. Have you ever actually read the verse in context, what, what verses before it? What's Paul saying? What verses after it? In Romans 3, if I'm, I'm back to the Amplified Bible, verse 20 says, For no person will be justified, made righteous, acquitted, and judged acceptable in God's sight by observing the works prescribed by the law. For the real function of the law is to make men recognize and be conscious of what sin is. 
not mere, mere perception, but an acquaintance with sin, which will work towards repentance, faith, and holy character. Verse 21, listen, but now, everybody say now, but now the righteousness or the right standing with God, which comes by believing with personal trust and confident reliance on Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come, he says, and it is meant for all who believe, for there's no distinction. You know why there's no distinction? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now listen, since all have sinned and are falling short of the glory, well, let me, I gotta read it right with the right. The last half of verse 22. This righteousness is meant for all who believe, for there is no distinction since all have sinned and are falling short of the glory and of the honor and the glory which God bestows and receives. But verse 24 says, all are justified and made upright and in right standing with God freely and gratuitously by his grace, his unmerited favor and mercy through the redemption which is provided in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward before the eyes of all as a mercy seat and a propitiation by his blood. Oh, it just goes on. But what I'm trying to get at here is it just cracks me up. If you're going to say all of sin, then you better be ready to say, but all in Christ have been justified. Because what it's saying is just like all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, because God knew that, his plan was that in Christ all would be justified and put into right standing with God. But you know us, like I said, we're negative by nature. And we read parts of scriptures. It's like, you know, all the time, you, well, you know what the Bible says? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. 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 But what about the second half of the verse? But the Lord delivers us out of them all. But the Lord delivers us out of them all. But you know what? We camp. Many are the, many, many are the afflictions of the righteous. <laughs> Sorry. And they live there. Which, you know, and you camp in that. But the Lord delivers us out of them all. Why? I don't know. You know, it's just a misery loves company. People that have misery in their spirit, misery in their heart, they really get offended when somebody else has a little joy. I want you to be ugly like me. I'm miserable. I want you to be miserable. In fact, we're going to start our own church called the First Church of the Misery. We just, you know, we just, I'm miserable. You're miserable. Let's all go have a miserable time together. And that's why there's a lot of miserable churches out there. Oh, well, it's the truth. I wish it wasn't, but it's the truth. Ugh. Romans 6, verses 6, 7, and 8. Knowing this, we're supposed to know this, that our old man has been crucified with him. Now, when it says your old man, that doesn't mean your wife or your husband. <laughs> you know what I mean? My husband, my old man was crucified. No. What's it speaking of? Speaking of your old nature. The old man. It refers to the old nature that you had in your spirit. Your old spirit. Knowing this, that your old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Again, you see, we read these too quickly. It says that the old man was crucified so that the body of sin might be destroyed. That is a past tense statement. The body, this thing that housed this nature of sinning has been destroyed in Christ Jesus. The only reason sin continues to have dominion over us is because we allow it to through a lack of knowledge. It's amazing when you actually begin to turn and confront stuff 
and say no to things because now you're no longer slaves. Remember, those of you that are in the grace teaching, the chain has been broken. You can walk as far away from that block of concrete as you want to, or you can choose to remain near it. But you no longer have to because the chains have been cut. Hallelujah. That's that's one of the best things that I've ever understood. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You hear what he's saying? You don't have to serve it. Quit serving it. I know it wants you to. I know it wants you to. I know it wants you to, but tell it no. Tell it no. You got to tell your body no. Just shut up. I know you want it. You can't have it. Shut up. And when your head starts figuring out, you know, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to, you just, you have to say, shut up. (laughs) Bless the Lord, O my soul. Why art thou cast down? You know, you will not think that. I take every thought into captivity. You're not allowed to think that way anymore. My mind's being renewed to the word of God. I'm a good man. I'm a holy man. I'm a, I'm a righteous man. I mean, I've had to work with this stuff for years with other ministers and pastors and they go through all kinds of problems. I mean, good godly men who don't understand this thing that sometimes I've had so many pastors tell me when they stand in the pulpit, the moment they stand in the pulpit, they'll tell, I've had, I can't tell you how many guys have told me that they get bombarded with foul, unclean thoughts as they, as they look out at women in their congregation. I mean, they just tell, because I've had to work with men's ministries for so long, don't get mad at me, but I worked with men's ministries for so long that we got real candid and real serious about stuff. And they'd look out and they'd say this, and they're good men, but suddenly they'd start having, you know, sexual thoughts or whatever, looking at women. And, and he'd go, my God, man, what's wrong with me? I'm, I, I'm just evil. I've got a demon or what have you. And I'd have to, and I'd go. <laughs> I wouldn't really stop him. But I said, no. I said, you got to understand. That's just, that's the lie that's coming. I said, you got to confront that. You're a good man. You're a holy man. You know, rebuke that stuff in the name of Jesus. Just tell her, you don't have the right. I'm not going to think that. I think holy thoughts. These are my sisters in the Lord. We'll be into anybody, anybody that thinks ill or touches a daughter of the Lamb of God. You know, you, you, you see things differently, and you be, but you have to renew your mind. It's a process. It does not happen overnight. But I'm telling you, you don't. You learn after a while, you do not have to bow down to the beggarly elements of this earth. You do not have to bow down to the beggarly elements of this earth. That's what Paul said in other places. Well, Peter said it too in another way. You do not have to. But see, if you're told all your life that you have to, if you're preached to all your life about stuff and that you have to get rid of it through will worship, you don't understand. You have to, you, you never will get free because it's like the teaching where people, they go and forgive me if I step on toes now. Well, we're going to go back into your past. We're going to go back into your past and we're going to remember. Now, let's, now, can, do you have any memories of maybe when you were six or seven years old of some man hurting you or somebody doing something to you. And they do all that. I'm telling you, there's a ton of ministries out there. And when you have those kind of conferences, they're packed, always packed. And, and well, you know, I do kind of remember. And I, you know, and of course now there's been all kinds of things, even law things, haven't they? Because they call this, what, what is it? Uh, repressed memory syndrome or something. Well, I remembered this, but what happens is this. See, listen to what people are trained into. Well, you know, I do kind of remember my uncle or something molesting. I think he, I think it was molested when I was eight years old. Now, maybe it's somebody has been, but listen to what I'm trying to get at. But the problem is this. If we teach people this, let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. Okay, and we find this. Okay, now let's repent of that. Let's rebuke that. Let's forgive. Okay, poof, it's gone. But now what's been instilled in you is the next time you have a problem, you know what you're going to do? You're going to start looking back. 
maybe there's something else that happened to me. Maybe there's something else. And you know what? When you get in the mind, I guarantee you, Satan will provide for you something. This is not a mental walk. This is a spiritual walk. If stuff has happened to you in the physical, deal with it. Get it out of your spirit. Say and, get, and forgive and move on. But don't get into this trap where you keep going, being told to go back and dig stuff up. Because I guarantee you, you will find stuff for the rest of your life. And Satan is a deceiver. You got to understand he'll provide you with something so that you're locked into this thing. You're locked into this thing and you never begin to live forward. You're always looking backwards. And it's a principle out of Hebrews that says about those who continue to look to the fatherland from where they came will have constant opportunity to return to it. Hebrews 11. It's an incredible truth. If you keep going back, if you keep talking about where you come from, you have constant opportunity. You create the opportunity to go back from what you were delivered from. It's a bad deal. It's just, you, it, there's truth in it, but like I said, almost all errors, the truth is taken to an extreme. You have to be able to rightly divide the Word of God, and you will not rightly divide this Word unless you have spiritual insight, unless you begin to live from the Spirit and understand the Spirit of the Word, not the letter of it. Sorry, but I'm getting all adamant here. Hallelujah. <sighs> Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. I've only got about five minutes, so I'm going to just read this on the very bottom paragraph. This is a quote from E.W. Kenyon. Almost beyond our comprehension is the fact that God declares that he himself has become our righteousness. Righteousness means that ability to stand in God's presence without the sense of guilt, condemnation, or inferiority. You need to think about that statement for about 20 years. A redemption that would be worthy of God must accomplish this. Man had been estranged from God and must be restored. The whole drama of redemption is consummated in this. Man must be restored to perfect fellowship with the Father, and it must be done upon legal grounds. Any redemption that does not restore to man a perfect fellowship and a perfect relationship on legal grounds will not be worthy of the Father and will not lift man into the place that God has planned for him. When we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, that righteousness, that righteousness becomes a part of our being because we become partakers of the divine nature. Well, the divine nature is righteousness so we become righteous with his nature, his own righteousness. With this perfect righteousness comes perfect reconciliation, perfect fellowship, and perfect fellowship again. The old nature is identified by the lusts of the flesh that you'll read here. You know, it, it speaks to these. So you can please read these verses for yourself. Galatians 5 it says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, and they're these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. You know what lasciviousness means? It means no restraint. Lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. You know what such like is? That's God's miscellaneous column. <laughs> A lot of people say, well, I don't see that sin in the Bible. I always point them right here. It's right there in such like. 
of which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That means you'll never experience the things that the kingdom has for you. Like I said, I don't have time to go into it. But the lusts of the flesh are what the old nature is. Your old nature has either been nailed to the cross or it hasn't. But if you're saved, it's been nailed to the cross. And the issue now is not the old man. The issue is the new man created after true holiness and righteousness. And the issue is, again, learning to renew your mind to what God has done and present your body as a living sacrifice. And this is what we'll move from next week. Father, we thank you again for the entrance of your word. We're trusting you to bring impartation to us as we meditate on these things, not just on a Saturday morning, not just on a Saturday morning, but as we look into these things again and again and again, because faith comes in these things by hearing, not once, but hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. So we thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.